Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, Meb Faber is our guest this week on TVP, which delights us endlessly as we are big, big fans of his podcast, The Meb Faber Show. When he's not producing fantastic finance podcasts, Meb is the co-founder and CIO of Cambria Investment Management in LA and the author of five, nearly six books on investing. In this episode, Meb and Juan discuss valuations in the US as a risk and why they should allocate to international, especially in emerging markets. Value investors Seth Klarman and Cape. As a bit of housekeeping, CAPE is a valuation measure that uses real earnings per share over a 10-year period to smooth out fluctuations in corporate profits that occur over different periods of the business cycle. CAPE is an acronym that stands for Cyclically Adjusted Price to Earnings Ratio. Price to Earnings Ratio, or PE Ratio, is discussed in this episode, and it is the ratio for valuing a company that measures its current share price relative to its earnings per share. We also apologize in advance for the quality of the audio on this episode. We are always the best of our Wi-Fi connections these days. Enjoy. Meb Faber, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Great to be here, my friend. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a little bit nervous because you are a legend on the podcast scene. For how long have you been podcasting yourself? Legend at this point just means you've been doing it for a long time. So you're saying I'm old, but I'll take the compliment. Uh, man, what are we, 400 episodes in now? Uh, it feels like an eternity. Maybe five years would be my guest. Um, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, though, as you know. Um, you must have been one of the very first podcasts in finance to go live. How Where did that idea come from? Well, I mean, look, you take the Wayback Machine, man. We used to do things like academic papers and books and blogs. And then that became uh, Twitter and podcasts. And pretty soon, you know, you and I are going to be talking on TikTok or maybe uh, on holograms or whatever it may be. But, um, you know, we, we love putting out uh, investing research and ideas and connecting with people all over the world. You're in London uh, in a pub right now, it looks like, and I'm in Los Angeles uh, in in-laws. Where else could we do this? And uh, But it's been a lot of fun because you put research out these days and there's no better place than the internet or blasting it out into people's ears and, and brain uh, because it only takes now about where it used to take about six months to get feedback on academic papers. Now you get it within 30 seconds on how quick a, of an idiot you are. So it's very, very quick feedback cycle versus uh, versus 10, 20 years ago. I can't wait to hear you sing about capes on TikTok. That, that's going to be... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I, I, have not, I, I don't have any good dance moves, so I, I will disappoint. Uh, we are good fans of the show. You are also an author and you've written... Uh, how many books now? Three, four? Written uh, written five, edited two, and I am sad to say, you're actually the first person to ever hear this, um, almost done with a new one. Every time I write one, I swear, I swear on anything that I will never do another book again. Uh, but here we are. And um, I'm. Uh, it, it's kind of like this is a bad analogy, but um, for me, it's like, you know, giving, giving birth almost. It's like, I, I, I can't help myself. I don't want to do it. Uh, and then it just, it, it happens at some point. Um, <laughs> we, we, we may have to strike that analogy. I don't know if there's a, a better uh, explanation. I just, I don't want to write books and, uh, and until I have to just, um, you know, they, they come out of me. Uh, it's uh, it's a labor of love, but we got five. Can we know, can we have a snapshot of what the topic on the new book? Yeah. So um, 
one of the topics we spend a lot of time with is the struggle of the income and wealth gap all around the world. I talk a lot about it in the United States and trying to think how to alleviate that, you know, and, and traditional politicians, you know, they either come at it where they want to bring the top down, uh, you know, with through taxes and other measures. And that's always tough to me because I want to celebrate the world's greatest scientists and engineers, um, not demonize them, which often happens in the media, uh, but also or to bring the bottom up. And I think you can do both through a lot of ideas and policy. And we wrote a blog post called How to Narrow the, the Wealth and Income Gap. But from my you know tiny corner of the world, one of the ways I want to do it is to try to help everyone become an investor, um, you know, everyone on the planet. And the huge takeaway from that is, is you just have to be an owner. And we've seen this play out over generations where this power of compounding, we try to drill it in everyone's head, you know, just look, if you do 10% a year and give it 25, 50, 100 years, you make an enormous amount of money. Um, but the challenge is always getting people started. And so uh, the book that we're putting together is it's the title may change, but essentially it's called Be the Owner. And we're trying to meet people, you know, where they are. And in this case, we're demonstrating a lot of celebrities and athletes on how they made real money. So Michael Jordan, but also Rihanna, um, George Clooney. It was not their career, but rather their um, business where they made all their money. But then also a lot of regular Joes uh, on how they made money just by saving and investing. Anyway, it, it'll hopefully be a fun book, um, be out sometime and. 2029, I imagine, but uh, we're, we're, I promise, trying to do a sabbatical this summer and, and, and get that done. I've come to the realization that I started asking a lot of questions about your podcast and your books, but I haven't given you the opportunity to introduce yourself. So for those that don't know you, who is Matt Faber? Yeah, so uh, my day job uh, is in the investing world. Uh, I'm, I'm a quant. We manage 12 ETFs, public funds. And here in Los Angeles, California, uh, they are quantish, which just means they're rules-based, but they focus on a little um, very niche uh, strategies to very broad strategies. We manage almost a billion and a half in assets under management, around 100,000 investors all around the world. Um, I'm a fairly poor surfer and a great skier. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and like you said, put out a lot of content. Um, and try to my best to behave on on Twitter and elsewhere. How did someone who was born in Virginia, it, um, I hope that I'm correct in saying that, ended up living in, in LA? Man, there, there's even a few more stops. There's actually a Colorado native, went to university in Virginia, so you caught that, uh, was actually an engineer, you know, biomedical guy, and... Um, graduated at the peak of my favorite investing bubble, the internet bubble in 2000. Uh, it was also a double bubble. If you remember back there, it was not just the dot-com names, but biotech had a, had a bubble as well. And that was my background. And I, um, my hobby somewhat became my career. I was in grad school and, and while working at a biotech mutual fund and was scratching my head as all the stocks proceeded to decline, I don't know, 60, 80, 90, 100% uh, during that bubble. And then kept gravitating more and more towards the quantitative side of the business and further away from biotech. And then started Cambria, uh, I believe in 2006, started launching ETFs in 2013. And, and here we are uh, in 2022, um, just a few uh, still surviving, which is always the best compliment we like to give, not just investors, but entrepreneurs uh, alike, which is um, the biggest compliment you give anyone is just, is just surviving. So uh, we're, we're still here. That's fantastic. Um, I think that you and I share something, but you will correct, correct me if I'm wrong. And it's probably our favorite investor. And it's someone who people don't tend to refer to that much in the industry because he's not that well known outside of value uh, circle circles. But I'm a huge fan of Seth Klarman. That's, he's the reason why I became uh, an investor and a value investor and a deep value investor. In the, in the first place, and I think that you you have referred uh, you have make a reference to him in the past. That's great. You know, I'm sorry, value investor. It's it's somewhat of an affliction. You know, it's a, a very uh, odd sort of personality trait that you know Buffett talks about whether you're inoculated at birth with a certain concept. You know, I'm I'm even more 
of an outlier because I'm like half side of my brain is value investing and the other half is trend following, which often is at odds with each other. Um, my favorite is when they sort of uh, overlap, but that tends to be pretty rare. Um, but uh, but we love certainly following Seth in particular because of his writings. But I love the value uh, uh, or stock investors where you look at their portfolio uh, through 13Fs or whatever it might be, and um, the names are unique. You know, it's always mm-hmm. it's um, it's not as interesting to me to see the names that are like the hedge fund hotel names where 75 hedge funds own them. I like the ones where I like look at their positions and say, man, I've never even heard of that company before. Uh, let me dig in. So he's uh, he's certainly um, on the Mount Rushmore of, of uh, uh, value investors. Yeah. Um, Matt, so this is a podcast that aims to understand how people make decisions under uncertainty and trying to improve ourselves as investors and human beings and trying to be better over time at making decisions. And I think that we've never asked this question before, but I guess this time around with what is happening in the world, and we are uh, recording this 11 days into the invasion of Russia in Ukraine, it's more important than ever. So I want to ask the question, what is the best way for investors to make decisions when faced with so much uncertainty? Well, um... There will be a day, maybe it'll be me just to uh, to tease the host, but um, I've certainly never heard anyone go on CNBC and you said, you know what, here's my thesis. These are just certain markets. You know, these certain times, it seems so clear, right? Like the, the default base case is uncertainty. That's the, the world we live in, not just investing, but, but, but everything we deal with on a daily basis. And I think once um, you know we learn to embrace that, uh, it becomes uh, more a um, a question of expectations. And so, there's two things you can do: you can study a ton of history, and um, that at least gives you a framework from which to base some decisions around and say, "Oh, okay, I realize that normal stock market returns are extreme." For example, everyone expects like 10% returns in the stock market except Schroeder's, you guys, um, this triggered me more than anything in the past couple of years as you do your global surveys. And the United States investors said they expected 16% returns uh, like two years ago. And last year, I think it was 17% or something, um, which just, you know, uh, it, 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 it made me almost fall out of my seat. But, um, but if you look back in history, you get an understanding or a framework which to think about the world. So you can say, okay, well, yes, I understand stocks historically have done eight to ten percent. However, that's pretty rare. And two thirds of the time, you know, they're outside of that zero to ten percent range. They're down ten, up thirty, flat, minus, you know, on and on. And so, um, embracing that uncertainty is is the norm. But on top of that, it's not just stocks. And you can look at the outliers on every side. And so. Um, if you look at the history of stock markets in general, look at what's happened in Russia this past week. Um, certainly that surprises a lot of people, but you say, look, the Russian stock market closed down and what was it, 1917 during the Bolshe- Bolshevik revolution? And that was it, went to zero. But plenty of other markets, they may not have closed down, but they go nowhere for decades or essentially um, for most investors have the experience of almost shutting down where they lose 80%. Uh, and that's happened in the United States too. So, um, and then most of my British friends, I was over uh, in the pubs uh, pre-pandemic when the everyone was talking about the topic du jour, which was Brexit. And I said, you know, I think the UK stock market's cheap. And they would just groan and talk about, oh, Meb, are you crazy? Um, you know, that's a horrible, uh, but, uh, you know, the history giving you this guide of what can happen, I think um, serves as a good framework for for a guaranteed uncertain future now it ends up looking a lot like blackjack or any game of probability and statistics where are there the most likely outcomes? Yes. And then be prepared for the outliers on both sides, but it gives you more than anything, a framework for both what can happen, but expectations about what is most likely to happen. And and that leads to portfolio design and how to think about the future. We end up in a lot more non-consensus views on this topic than many. Um, But I think, uh, but the biggest fractures come uh, when people have expectations that are not met or grounded in reality and something comes along and upsets that. And that's when people really, really, really make the bad 
decisions, which almost always universally are, are emotional in nature. You're a quant investor, as you mentioned at the beginning of our session, and I think you are actually the first quant investor that we've had on the show. I'm going to ask you, how does having a quant mindset and process help you make better decisions as an investor? I guess some aspects of your process should help you block some of the biases that makes us prone to mistakes. So when I say quant, you know, it's like it's like describing the average dog, right? A beagle looks totally different than a Great Dane, which looks different than a bulldog, et cetera. And so some quants are super high frequency traders. All it means for me to be a quant is to be rules-based. And we love to ask investors, and if you're listening to this, uh, you can answer this in your head or write it down. But we say, do you have a written investing plan? And um, and the vast majority of people don't. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be a 10-page policy portfolio document. It could be three bullet points on how you have a 60-40 portfolio, you rebalance once a year, and that's it. You know, um, But the uh, but the reality is many people don't, even professionals, you talk to a lot of professionals, they put a ton of time into a buy or sell decision. Is gold cheap? What about inflation? What's the Fed doing? Are uh, US stocks an opportunity? What about commodities? On and on. But they almost never institute a sell discipline when they make the buy decision. They just sort of wing it. I'm going to buy this and see how it goes. And as we know, um, all sorts of psychology creeps in. If anyone doesn't believe me, go take a look of uh, walk into your garage and see all the junk that's in your garage and ask yourself, would I go buy all this junk if I didn't own it today? Of course not. You know, you would, you would never buy any of that stuff in the garage. But it's the same thing with the portfolio. People have a attachment to something that's totally different once they buy it than prior to owning it. And so, um, you know, having these rules about how to put together an investing portfolio and process, I think is uh, extremely important. Nobody does it, but it's a great first step because when you have environments like you do now, you say, okay, what am I going to do if interest rates, I mean, just look at the past 10 years. I don't know about you, but when I was an undergrad, they weren't teaching me about negative interest rates. They weren't teaching me about what happens when oil futures go to minus 30. Um, and so all of these outlier things that happen, if you don't have a basic framework for how to think about a portfolio, you're at a huge disadvantage because what happens? You wake up, you see an invasion or a pandemic or wheat being limited up at $14 uh, a bushel. And then you have to react emotionally, your stocks up, your stocks down. And so it's not just the downside, by the way. It's also when you have outlier outcomes, to the upside, you have a stock that goes up 10x. What do you do? You know, mm-hmm. many in many cases, if someone has a stock that doubles, they sell it. Oh, my God. Amazing. I just doubled my money thinking about the vacation I'm going on, thinking on the car I'm going to buy. But that 2x is often a uh, the first step on the way for a stock to go five, 10 X, or even a hundred bagger, you know, life-changing amount of wealth. Most people would sell it too soon for reasons that they, uh, may look back on, you know, good example of course, is, is Apple or Amazon. Apple's had a, I think a 75% decline in every decade since their existence. And here we are at a, a $2 trillion market cap or more. So, um, I think having a, a very basic written plan, it's like a diet, you know, if you don't have something on paper, you're probably probably not going to stick to it. I think that you get asked this a lot, or maybe you comment about it a lot, and I think it's quite interesting. And it's something that when we've discussed different passes with people on the show, it has not been mentioned before on the podcast, and is this concept of country allocation bias. I want to ask you, what's a country bias and how most investors suffer from it and what can we do to push against it, especially in the times we're living in? So home country bias is a very simple um, concept, which is most people invest most of their money in their own stock market. So for me, the United States is only about 60% of the world's total stocks. And uh, the average investor here puts 80% of their stock allocation in the United States. Now, that's a huge active overweight. And um, maybe you're okay with it, but the reality is uh, you at least need to be aware of it. Now, it's even more problematic for most of the countries around the world where they may only be 3% of the world's market cap. And the investors still put 90, 95% in the stock market. We tweeted out a recent statistic that showed that uh, the average Russian had 95% of their stock investments in the Russian stock market. 
And if you look at the history of research, we have a summary article called um, The Case for Global Investing, um, a equal weighted, a GDP weighted, uh, an index weighted global portfolio almost universally beats any single country. It's just a risk that's not compensated for uh, across time. Now, there are periods. So if you talk to the average American today, they would be really happy that they were overweight the US for the past decade because it stomped everything else. But if you look at the decade prior, from when I graduated university through the financial crisis, the US is one of the worst performing markets. Um, and then you had the US outperformed in the 90s. Uh, but before that, you have to go all the way back to the 1910s. And so you have um, people love to extrapolate the recent history of what's going on into the indefinite feature, uh, future. Um, you're Colombian, I was down in Bogota giving a speech years ago when the stock market was, was ripping and roaring. And um, I said, I gave a speech and I said, look, you know, I, I love this country. The people are super nice. The food's amazing. It's gorgeous. Um, however, your stock market's really expensive. And this was maybe in 2014. Um, and the responses I got were just like, Meb, you don't understand. Um, we're putting X amount of money into the market each month from the pension funds. They're flush because of oil, whatever it was. The things people say when markets are at all-time highs and the market has done well, contrast that with probably now, uh, if you were to give that talk. I haven't been invited back, so maybe you can help me out here. Um, but I also gave talks in many in many places in uh, Eastern Europe You know when their countries were super cheap and, and we're finding them again here today. Uh, in the same situation. And the opposite was true. No, no one was interested. And they would say, Meb, you know, obviously our stock market's cheap. We know that because it's down 80%. The problem is we don't have any money, right? Like the, this would have, so you, you find these things rinse repeat over and over again. And um, the reality is like the US as an example, you know, has traded at a P ratio. We like to use the 10, 10 year price earnings ratio or Cape Schiller ratio, but it really doesn't matter. Is traded as low as five and as high as 45. There's other countries in the world like Japan that's got darn near 100. So um, you have these investments that people love to chase. And a great, I think, um, quote on this is people love to buy what they wish they had bought. And so you're starting to see people clamor into commodities again, you know, for the first time in, in forever. Commodities was a, a very trendy allocation post 2000 bubble, all the institutions bought some, and then they've all sold it over the past five years because it had 10 years of terrible returns. And then here we are again. So one of the challenges we often say is it's really hard to be asset class agnostic. And this applies to, to um, circle back to the beginning of this question. This applies to your own country. It's hard. Like I'm a Denver Broncos fan. Uh, it, it would be really hard for me to cheer for the Raiders. But when it comes to investing, you have to diversify globally, uh, but also with asset classes, not just stocks. So bonds, commodities, real assets, um, and realize every asset in every country has its moment in the sun and, and moment in the shade. It's interesting what you said about the, um, the Colombian market back in 2014, because you will correct me if I'm wrong, but every time that you make a reference on Twitter that X or Y is expensive, you get people super hyped and very active pushing against the argument, actually even offended sometimes. Everyone's always offended on Twitter. That's like, that's kind of table stakes for social media. Right. Um, but that more than anything, I think is, is true. People, uh, when they're in an investment, it's doing well. No one wants to be told the party's ending. You know, I come see you guys in London and we go get a few pints. I'll probably be, you're going to have to drag me out. I'll be the last person. Like, you know, I don't want to go home. Um, and so when people are, uh, the good times are happening, they don't want some, uh, you know, wet blanket saying, hey, look, you know, the odds are now such that uh, they're not favorable to your investment. And I think this is very much the case in the United States, market cap weighted. Um, you know, they, Seem to have peaked last year, last February, the craziness, but the market cap weight has continued to go up and, and we'll see if it's peaked or not for this cycle in the last couple of months. But, um, you know, it got to a P ratio of 40, which historically has portended uh, the next decade of, of no 
returns on a real basis. And so I think that would be my expectation that you would have no returns in the US stock market for the next decade. Um, I think there's opportunities within value and, and other ideas, but the broad market cap weight, um, if you look at all the coincident indicators, and we list like there's like seven, it was like the Schroeder's high sentiment, you had uh, people trading risky options, meme stocks, all of the Robinhood crowd, um, you had unrealistic expectations, you had on and on high valuations. And the final boss that we would always say is, was the trend, you know, until the trend rolled over, uh, you, uh, you, we went from yellow to red light. And then here we are now, because the trend is finally negative. Why is it that you have a preference for the Cape? And I know that if we don't define this, uh, Emily will have to define it on her introductory notes when she's presenting the pod. So what is the Cape and why do you find it so, so powerful? So I actually don't have a preference for CAPE. I just like to talk about it because it's simple. Uh, but what the CAPE is, uh, Professor Schiller, who's now Nobel laureate, uh, came up with a way to say, look, you know, the markets are noisy. Let's try to take a step back and look at a market on a macro level on a long-term time horizon. Everyone says they have a long-term time horizon. They really don't. We can come back to that. But um, he said, I'm going to look at 10 years of earnings, adjusted it for inflation, and, and look at the price earnings ratio on this metric. And he goes back to the 1800s. You can do it for sectors. You can do it for countries. We were the first ones, to my knowledge, to do it. You can find a lot of free resources today that track it for 45 countries around the world. I am of the belief that your valuation metric does not matter. When you have a country that's super expensive in a bubble, every valuation metric will say the same thing. And as my belief, the US market, every single valuation metric says that US stocks are expensive. You can't find one that says they're cheap. And on the flip side, when a market's really cheap, it doesn't matter which one you use. They all say the same thing. Um, that's my belief. So I, we use CAPE as a shorthand, uh, but we, when we published our book a long time ago, we said you could use dividend yield and you come up with a darn near similar conclusion, which is you're simply using a, a metric for value. And historically speaking, if you sort based on any metric of value, it does better than not. Um, now, it's not like 6% outperformance. It's like one or two, usually, I think, is, is a reasonable expectation. Um, and it's But the muscle movement there is not just that you're investing in the cheap stuff. That's great right? It's all well and good. You're investing in cheap stuff. It's also that you're avoiding the stupid expensive. So back in 07, everyone was clamoring for the bricks, right? India and China had PE ratios in the 40s and 50s and 60s, total bubble territory, totally crazy, higher than the US has ever been. Um, and then they had no returns for a decade. Japan, we mentioned, was the granddaddy. It was the biggest stock market in the world at the time. Not some, you know, backwater economy. It's still one of the top economies in the world. In the 1980s, it got to a, a 10-year P ratio of almost 100. And then it's had no returns for decades since. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a it's a simple indicator hur heuristic to use. Um, but I think if you use almost any valuation metric, you'll you'll sort of end up in the in the right galaxy, which is a sort of way to think about um valuation, like the it's nothing you're going to be measuring to the right of the decimal plate place. Um, we are recording, as, as I mentioned before, um, 11 days into the um, invasion of Russia and Ukraine, which is a terrible tragedy. And but just sticking to the to the investment side of things and, and process over outcome, Russia, and I think that you've discussed this in the past, and you've made the point that. Uh, people should allocate to emerging markets because they were looking attractive on a, on a relative uh, valuation metric or they were looking cheap. Um, and, and Russia is one of these places that had gone through three or four different crises over the course of the last 20 years. And there was always a lot of panic and valuations just uh, took a hit and went down to levels that if you were, if you were brave enough and bought at those times, um, you would have made a compounded return that was very high in dollar terms. Um, and so allocating capital to Russia, even despite of what happened or what has happened over the course of the last 11 days, should not be seen as a mistake, despite the outcome given the probabilities and the risk of reward returns allocating to Russia should have been seen or could have been seen as a smart decision. 
do you think this is the right conclusion or is it too, too soon to tell? You know, I, I think the the first lesson for any investor and particularly the older ones, if you talk to, uh, they tend to be very humble. They tend to be very proud of what I call their failure resume, um, all their losing trades and what they've learned from them. And um, yeah, I, I tend to run away from the portfolio managers that aren't. And we've certainly had, uh, you know, hundreds of those. And looking back historically, there are the cases where I would probably shake my head and say, look, either this process was poorly designed or there was a mistake personally or emotionally um, that I made. Um, as you analyze uh, Russia as an example, you know, geopolitics is hard. There's no question there. Um, and so if you're looking to build a global portfolio, and so we have funds that focus on emerging markets as well as funds that focus on all stocks globally. Um, the first thing to take into consideration to me is always um, how to you how do you hedge against the risk of any one stock sector or country uh, imploding, you know? And so um, you can apply that lens to anything. I mean, stocks all the time go to zero. So you can have the best stock in the world. And it turns out the CFO is fraudulent and you couldn't have done anything with, with them cooking the books. And, and that's that, right? So you diversify by owning lots of stocks, never putting all your eggs in one basket. Same as sectors. Um, I mean, look at energy now. Energy is ripping and roaring, but it was a couple years ago when energy was only 2% of the S&P 500. S&P uh, energy weighting at one point peaked at almost 30% decades ago. And here we were at two and no one wanted energy. And you had this devastation in energy land where those, many of those stocks lost 80% plus. So you diversify by not putting all your eggs in the energy basket. Same is true with countries. Um, it's certainly challenging to um, always be on track of what all the geopolitics are. And there's usually, if you buy, if you're, if you're waiting in the cheap countries uh, you're often waiting in places that look absolutely terrible. It's the who's who of worst geopolitics and economics um, across the board. And uh, that's one of the reasons PE ratio, the, the big takeaway with PE ratio is usually not the E, it's the P. And you, if you go and take the 45 countries in the world and do a regression of valuation versus drawdown, meaning simply how much that stock market's down, the cheap stuff is just the stuff that's gone down 40, 60, 80, 90%. Um, and the expensive stuff traditionally is, is things that are at, at all-time highs. And um, historically speaking, buying the basket of the cheaper puts you in a better place than the expensive. Russia. So um, there's two ways to think about this topic. The first is, are there countries that are simply uninvestable? And I have a good friend, Perth Toll. Um, who thinks the answer is yes. And, and she runs a fund that focuses on freedom weighting emerging markets. Uh, and so some of those just don't meet the criteria. So she doesn't invest in China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, on and on. Um, and ESG sort of metrics, I think, are, are really hard uh, because um, they change over time. So a good example would be prediction markets put 20% probability of there being regime change in Russia uh, by the end of this year. Now that seems high to me, but it's certainly not zero. And if that happens, all of a sudden, um, you know, theoretically that, that investments there could be totally investable again. You know, who knows? Um, Latin America is like, I talked to certain friends, they say, Meb, you can't invest in Colombia. Are you crazy? You can't invest in Brazil and Argentina. How many times have they defaulted on their debt? And so on and on. So there's different parts of this spectrum. It's a debate that I struggle with. I see both sides of it. As a quant, I tend to prefer more breadth and I hedge my, um, my risks largely by diversifying. But let me give you a good example. And I think, you know, Russia is a small percentage of global market cap as well as for uh, emerging. But you know who's not is China. You know, China for some indices is darn near half of uh, emerging market exposures and um, free float weighted, et cetera. And you mix in Taiwan in that mix too. And that becomes a much more significant um, allocation. Uh, so um, I'm very opinionated about a lot of things. This one, I, I fall somewhat in the middle on 
um, and uh, kind of see both sides of of the argument. We we tend to fall back on the, um, you know, we we let the regulators make the rules and we play by them, um, and we're not trying to to adjust on the ESG side. Uh, but we could probably do two hour podcasts on this on this topic alone. Yeah. Um, in preparation for this session, I listened to the podcast sessions that you had, Jake Taylor, on five good questions about uh, five or six years ago. And some of the things that you were mentioning back then seem to be as important today. So you were saying that diversified geographically is very important. Pay attention to valuation levels and don't invest in the largest components of the index. Yet the last five years only saw an accentuation of those risks. How do you communicate with clients that the fact that the risk, the fact that the risk has not materialized yet doesn't mean that it has gone away and actually may have even become more risky? It's hard. You know, um, back uh, if you were guys to invite me over to London and we would go to the pub and uh, an investor comes up to me and would say, hey, Meb. I own one of your, I just bought one of your funds six months ago. And this is always the case because we have 12 funds. So something is always doing terrible and something is always working usually. <laughs> and so someone comes up to me and says, Meb, bought one of your funds. It's not doing great, you know, but I like you. I listen to your podcast. Um, how long should I give it? And I used to say uh, 10 years was the answer. And they would kind of laugh awkwardly. And then I would say, no, I'm, be I'm being serious. If you buy an asset class or an active uh, portfolio, you should expect that there could easily be a 10-year period where the performance is poor and all of the justifications for buying it are still sound. That's not what people want to hear, right? They want results. They want them now. They want to see even most institutions, their time horizon is two to three years, which is the exact opposite of what they should be. You know, if you're an institution judging on that, you should probably be fired, um, honestly. And in and, and my Belief has changed, by the way. Um, I don't say 10 years anymore. I say 20. And then people really don't want to hear that, but it, but it's the truth. you know. And so if you look at anything, it could be gold versus stocks. It could be stocks versus bonds. It could be UK versus US, you know, value versus growth, commodities. I mean, we were doing this three months ago. People would be laughing at uh, talking about doing commodities. And here we are um, you know, with, with $7 gas in Los Angeles, and that's a very different discussion. And so to me, you have to build a portfolio with balance And most portfolios are woefully, um, concentrated in a few risks. And the problem with most of the buy and hold portfolios is they're concentrated in a risk that also is the same risk that everyone has in their human capital day-to-day -day life, which is their portfolio is highly tethered to the economic cycle so when it's hitting the fan, global financial crisis, Brexit, internet bubble crashing, um, your portfolio is also doing terrible, which is the opposite of what it should do. And so we say, we always say as a starting point that people should invest in the global market portfolio, which is what, uh, if you just bought the entire world of public assets, which is roughly half stocks, half bonds, half US, half foreign, that's a great starting point. And um, we layer in real assets. They tend to be a little harder to invest in. Single family housing and, and farmland aren't really represented as um, easily investable assets, but things like real estate, commercial uh, REITs, things like um, tips or, or commodities. Um, we talk a lot about trend following and managed futures as, as a way to get exposure there, but that gets a little more esoteric. But um, having that base case portfolio to me is a great starting point because um, you end up with the diversification where something is not working um, for a long time. You know, the, the hated markets of today, um, you know, are, are yesterday's darlings and, and vice versa. And so it's hard for people not to get attached to being a gold bug or dividend guy or uh, a crypto gal, you know, on and on, whatever it may be. Um, but to come up with a diversification, this goes back 2000 years. We wrote in our, our book, Global Asset Allocation, it's free, download online. We wrote about the Talmud portfolio, which is 2000 years old. Now, they weren't, it wasn't a portfolio, but they were talking and say, let every man invest a third in business, a third in land, and a third keeping reserve. And in my mind, that's stocks, real assets, and, and cash and bonds. That's a really hard portfolio to beat. And um, you have to put the caveat on all of this of, 
you have to be mindful of costs, fees, transaction costs, every single cost wrapped around that portfolio. Uh, but once you have that, that that base case, I think, and this is a non-consensus view, that's actually a much safer portfolio than even holding it in cash. And that argument, by the way, is, is coming to light now with, with inflation picking up and interest rates being so low. Uh, we did a, a, a post on this called the Stay Rich Portfolio that I think no one on the planet believes other than me um, and, and Michael Saylor, perhaps, and he believes it with a totally different conclusion, <laughs> but it's uh, but it's a fun one. So uh, having a long-term perspective, I think, is essential, but probably really hard for most. I would like to explore a behavioral tool that came up in our discussion with Jake Taylor and something I was reminded of uh, while looking at one of your blogs, which is saying that maybe six years ago you were writing about the fact that you you had been screening about the worst performers back then and and you had signal to people that coal mining companies um, had done very poorly and then they doubled and then you screen again and it was the case that uranium wasn't very poorly so again the the indication was, well, maybe it's a good idea to allocate to what's done very bad in the past and uranium mining companies have done very bad in the past. And so we'll explore this um, idea of maybe writing down the rule where you say, I'm just going to, if this happens, I'm going to make a, a contract with myself that regardless of what's happening in the world, I'm going to push forward and I'm going to double down or I'm going to buy at that level. I'm just going to close my eyes, I'm going to buy this country or that sector or that commodity because it has been so bad in the past that it just, I'm going to count on it to mean revert. Um, is, that, is that something smart to do? And why is it so powerful as a behavioral tool? And, and as a quant investor, is that something that you do? Yeah, the, um, you know, bottom fishing, catching a falling knife, this topic is attracts a certain mindset. There's the old investing maxim where, uh, what do you call something that's down 90%? That's something that was down 80% that, that then got cut in half afterwards. So there can still be a lot of risk. A lot of people see something went down 80%. They're like, oh my God, it can't go down much more. And well, it, it, it can, it can go down all the way. Um, but we did a few fun studies back in my very first book, which was Ivy Portfolio. And, and I wouldn't necessarily bet my whole portfolio on this, but I think it's fun uh, way to look at the world because um, sentiment follows price. And so if you were to go back to US stocks, for example, um, and look at the American Association of Individual Investors Survey, which goes back decades, and look at the single most bullish month in the history of the survey is when people were most bullish on stocks it was December 1999. The literally most expensive month stocks have been in my entire lifetime was when people wanted the most. And when were they most bearish? You can guess it. Like this is out of a, a comic book, March of 2009. And so um, our emotions work against us. And um, we did a few studies. One was what happens when you buy things after they go down 60, 80, 90%. Another was what happens if you look at markets that were down multiple years in a row. So for like the big indices, S&P, IFA, foreign developed markets, you could look at what happens after they go down three years in a row. And, um, and if you pair that with how far they go down, saying is just like, uh, you know, there's the old phrase of you buy when there's blood in the streets. And that's sadly a little too literal today, but uh, meaning where a, a market has been totally destroyed. Um, there, there usually is some opportunity. Um, it goes back to, uh, man, who was it? I'm trying to remember with Templeton back during the great depression. He said, look, I'm just going to buy every stock that's trading under $5 or a dollar. I can't even remember and just close my eyes, hold my nose, hold them. And a lot of them went out of business, but a lot of them were these multi baggers, 10 hundred baggers from there. Um, so we like to look at things after they've gone down a ton. Uh, we used to do this post, which you referenced. Uh, the first one, I think, was um, why you should ask for coal, parentheses, stocks in your stocking this year uh, for the holidays because they were down so much. And, and everyone had kind of left behind much of the agriculture. And I come from a farming background, so um, this is closer to me than most. But uh, a lot of these agriculture and energy inputs. Um, and then... Uh, 
many markets have gone up over the past handful of years. So there wasn't a ton that had been having these multiple down years in a row. I think Pakistan may have been in there last year. Uh, but it's an interesting place to to wade. Now, we often talk about using trend as a indicator on when they're finally kind of going from cheap and hated into an uptrend, which is really my favorite investment. Super cheap investment. Everyone hates it. And then it's finally entering into uh, an up movement. You can get some pretty explosive returns, but um, but as but as with anything, uh, you know, they can <laughs> just because it's cheap doesn't mean it can't get a lot cheaper. Yeah, um, that's really interesting, and it's really interesting. I I like the post about coal because again, uh, given environmental concerns, which are very valid, of course, um, the coal industry was given up for that, but then. You know, things happen in the world, and now coal has had quite a comeback over the course of the last 10 weeks, uh, together with many other commodities that um, have been having quite a bad reputation. Yeah. And hey, look, man, I live in Los Angeles. I drive a Tesla. So I, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I get it. But at the same time, realize that, you know, many of these inputs into an economy are still vital and probably still will be for a long time. And so I try to, it's hard to distance from um, what, uh, what has done really poorly from, you know, a lot of our interests, but there's often opportunity uh, everywhere. Um, we do the end of our session and we always ask our guests two questions. Number one, a book recommendation, and you're welcome to recommend one, two, or many of the uh, five books that you have written or anything uh, or something different. And the second question is an example of a bad outcome where you can identify the outcome as um, something that came about from bad process and not bad luck. And it doesn't have to be investment related. Sure. Well, the good news is because I have a uh, tift with um, Amazon, you can download most of my books for free on my blog, Meb Faber, or uh, our, our Cambria Investments website. Um, but we're not going to talk about those. We're going to talk about my favorite investing book is from uh, some professors right down the street from you guys called Triumph of the Optimists. And this book is expensive. So uh, listeners, pick it up at the library, check it out. Or um, you can uh, you can see they do yearly free updates if you Google Credit Suisse, the Global Investment Returns Yearbook. And they've been doing this for about a decade. So they do a different theme each year. Sometimes it's emerging markets, sometimes it's factors, sometimes it's ESG. You could probably learn from more from those 10 years of, of uh, updates than an entire MBA, I think. So um, we did a podcast with the hosts and, and uh, with the authors, excuse me. And I love that book because it shows um, stocks, bonds, bills, returns in dozens of countries back to 1900 and shows all the things can happen. Hey, you know, tiny little South Africa had a great run, um, but other countries like Austria, not so much and on and on uh, um, kind of what's happened in history. And it's a beautiful book to boot. Um, then the second question, what? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're my, my bud, Mark Yusko, has a great phrase where he says, um, every trade makes you either richer or wiser and never both. Um, and so <laughs> if you look back into your early days, being a young person, um, and I was saying this to like a lot of the Robin Hood crowd last year, I'm like, you don't want to hear this, but, you know, most of you are going to lose money here um, and take that as take those scars with some pride. Um, and, and how can I say that with confidence? Well, you know, I remember all the Forex brokers, anyone who's hyperactively trading, uh, the long history of that is just a graveyard. When they disclosed like what percentage of their customers lost money, it was like 98%. And I think, uh, I think uh, a lot of the Robin Hood disclosures will be um, certainly in that ballpark at some point. Um, and so thinking about your mistakes, you should learn from them and take them with pride because it helps to inform the rest of your career. And hopefully you're not making these mistakes when you have a family and a bunch of kids and a job and, and everything, uh, a partner to support. And so um, I think uh, early in my career, I was a quant, a biotech guy, you know, as I discussed earlier. And um, 
I had actually had a pretty successful trading as an undergraduate and then coming out of college um, on both sides of the market. So I used to do shorting too. So I survived that, but I made a very, very classic blunder, two blunders. Um, the first being is I put on a trade and I had a thesis. In this case, it was a biotech company uh, that had a drug that was coming up for approval. So my thesis was it was not going to get approved, which would send the stock down 50, 60, 70%. However, I was aware that a lot of these meetings are coin flips. And so I said, I want to protect myself to the upside if it does get approved, because it'll also go up 80% if it gets approved. And so I put on the trade, it was known as option strangle or straddle. I can't remember which at the time, but um, you know, leading up to the actual event, the premium in the options had already doubled because the volatility. And so um, a thoughtful trader, maybe an older trader would say, oh, I'm going to take a few chips off the table because this trade is already working, but I was young. Um, and so I didn't. And then what happens, the uh, drug does not get approved. So, uh, excuse me, the drug does get approved. Stock goes up. So I made money, but not much, right? So the first lesson is um, your thesis, the event has happened. The catalyst is done. It's time to close the trade. But I said, you know what? Maybe there'll be some additional move. It got approved. It doesn't seem like the market's really reacting. I'm going to give it a few more days and then close out the trade. And then for some unknown, unrelated reason, the company decided to pre-announce their earnings for no reason whatsoever. They just decided to do it. And that knocked the stock back down to right around the stock price, in which case I lost 100% of the trade. Um, so the first mistake was you know, not following your initial thesis. The second part of the trade was bet sizing. So you can make almost any bet. And if it's small, you won't get taken out of the game. And the number one mistake you can't make in investing is you lose your chip stack. It applies to betting and poker and everything else too, right? Like it's the number one thing. You can't lose all your money because if you do, you can't bet. And so in this case, um, my position sizing was way too high. Essentially my entire bankroll, which I then lost um, and ate mustard sandwiches for two years um, in San Francisco. So, um, but it, that informed a lot for the rest of my career. You know, I have all the behavioral biases. I'm overconfident. I'll take too much risk if you were to let me. Uh, which is one of the reasons that I became a quant. I said, look, man, I, I want these guardrails. I don't want to have chocolate ice cream in my freezer at night because I'll go eat it. So um, same thing on the investing. I don't want to be able to make some of these dumb decisions because I'll probably blow myself up if I give them the chance. And so um, I, I wear that uh, scar with a lot of pride and I have a lot more to go along with it. There's a whole family on my, uh, on my body, but um, that one certainly uh, gives me sweaty palms even to think about today. That's really interesting. Matt Faber, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. It's been a blast. Look forward to seeing you guys in person one of these days soon. Thank you.